Chapter Five of the De Bercy Affair by Gordon Holmes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: The Missing Blade. On that same morning of the meeting on the sands at Tormouth, Inspector Clark, walking southward down St. Martin's Lane toward Scotland Yard, had a shock. Clark was hardly at the moment in his best mood for to the natural vinegar of his temperament a drop of lemon, or of gall, had been added within the last few days. That morning at breakfast he had explained matters with a sour mouth to Mrs. Clark. "'Oh, it was all a made-up job between Winter and Fourneau, and I was only put on to the anarchists to make room for Fourneau. That was it. The two anarchists weren't up to any mischief. Anarchists was all a blind. That's what anarchists was.' but that's the way things are run now in the yard, and there's no fair play going any more. Forno must have Feldisham mansions, of course. Forno this and Forno that, of course. But wait, he hasn't solved it yet, and he isn't going to, no, and I haven't done with it yet, not by a long way. Now, where do you buy these eggs? Just look at this one. The fact was, now that the two anarchists, Descartes and Janoc, had been deported by the court, and were gone, Clark suddenly woke to find himself disillusioned, dull, excluded from the fun of the chase. But, as he passed down St. Martin's Lane that morning, his underlooking eyes, ever on the prowl for the confidence men who haunt the West End, saw a sight that made him doubt if he was awake. There, in a little by-street to the east, under the three balls of a pawnbroker's, he saw, or dreamt that he saw, Emile Janoc, Janoc, whom he knew to be in Holland, and Janoc was so deep, so lost, in talk with a girl, that he could not see Clark standing there, looking at him. And Clark knew the girl, too. It was Bertha Seward, the late cook of the murdered actress, Rose de Bercy. Could he be mistaken as to Janoc? he asked himself. Could two men be so striking to the eye, and so alike? the lank figure stooping, the long wavering legs, the clothes hanging loose on him, the scraggy throat with the bone in it, the hair black and plenteous as the raven's breast, draping the sallow dark face, the eyes so haggard, hungry, unresting. Few men were so picturesque, few so greasy, repellent, and there could be no mistake as to Bertha Seward a small thin creature with whitish hair and little Chinese eyes that seemed to twinkle with fun. It was she. And how earnest was the talk! Clark saw Janoc clasp his two long hands together, and turn up his eyes to the sky, seeming to beseech the girl, or, through her, the heavens. Then he offered her money, which she refused, but when he cajoled and insisted she took it, smiling. Shaking hands they parted, and Janoc looked after Bertha Seward as she hurried, with a sort of stealthy haste, towards the strand. Then he turned, and found himself face to face with Clark. For a full half-minute they looked contemplatively, eye to eye, at one another. "'Janoc?' said Clark. "'That is my name for one moment, Sarah,' said Janoc politely, in a very peculiar though fluent English. "'And the yours, Sarah?' unless you have a very bad memory you know mine. How on earth come you to be here, Emile Janoc? England is free country, sir, said Janoc with a shrug. I see not the why I must render you account of movement, 
only i tell you this time because you are so singular familiarly with my name of family you deceive yourself as to my little name i have it is true a brother named emile clark looked with a hard eye at him the resemblance if they were two was certainly very strong since it seemed all but impossible that emile Janoc should be in england he accepted the statement grudgingly perhaps you wouldn't mind letting me see your papers he asked Janoc bowed that i will do with big pleasure sir he said and produced a passport recently visaed in holland by which it appeared that his name was not emile but gaston they parted with a bow on Janoc's side and a nod on clark's but clark was puzzled something queer about this he thought i'll keep my eye on him what was he doing talking like that so earnest to the actress's cook suppose she was murdered by anarchists it is certain that she was more or less mixed up with them more perhaps than is known why did those two come over the night after her murder for it's clear that they had no design against the czar i'll look into it on my own easy now clark my boy and maybe you'll come out ahead of Furneaux, winter and all the lot in the end when he arrived at his chief's office in the yard he mentioned to Winter his curious encounter with the other Janoc, but said not a word of Bertha Seward, since the affair of the murder was no longer his business officially. Winter paid little heed to Janoc, whether Emile or Gaston, for Fourneau was there with him, and the two were head to head, discussing the murder, and the second sitting of the inquest was soon to come. Indeed, Clark heard Winter say to Fourneau, I promised Mr. Osborne to give some sort of excuse to his servants for his flight from home. I was so busy that I forgot it. Perhaps you will see to that too, for me? Glad you mentioned it. I intended to go there at once, Fourneau said, in that subdued tone which seemed to have all at once come upon him, since Rose de Bercy was found lying dead in Feldisham mansions. Well then, from henceforth everything is in your hands, said Winter. Here I hand you over our dumb witness, and he held out to Fourneau the blood-soiled axe-head of flint that had battered Rose de Bercy's face. He was not sure, he wondered afterwards whether it was positively a fact, but he fancied that for the tenth part of a second Fourneau shrank from taking, from touching, that object of horror, a notion so odd and fantastic that it affected winter as if he had fancied that the poker had lifted its head for the tenth part of a second but almost before the conceit took form fourneau was coolly placing the celt in his breast pocket and standing up to go fourneau drove straight as he had said to mayfair and soon was being ushered into osborne's library where he found miss prout the secretary with her hat on busy opening and sorting the morning's correspondence. He introduced himself, sat beside her, and while she continued with her work, told her what had happened, how Osborne had been advised to disappear till the popular gale of ill-will got stilled a little. "'Ah, that's how it was,' the girl said, lifting interested eyes to his. "'I was wondering,' and she pinned two letters together with the neatness of method and order. Fourneau sat lingeringly with her listening to an aviary of linnets that prattled to the bright sunlight that flooded the library, and asking himself whether he had ever seen hair so glaringly red as the lady secretary's, a great mass of it that wrapped her head like a flame. "'And where has Mr. Osborne gone to?' 
she murmured, making a note in shorthand on the back of one little bundle of correspondence. "'Somewhere by the coast, I think,' said Forneau. "'West coast? East coast?' "'He didn't write to me. He wrote to my chief. For though Forneau well knew where Osborne was, his retreat was a secret.' The girl went on with her work, plying the paper-knife, now jotting down a memorandum, now placing two or more kindred letters together. For every hospital and institution wrote to Osborne, every one who wanted money for a new flying machine, or had a dog or a hunter to sell, or intended to dine and speechify and send round the hat. "'It's quite a large batch of correspondence,' Fourneau remarked. "'Half of these,' the girl said, are letters of abuse from people who never heard Mr. Osborne's name till the day after that poor woman was killed. All England has convicted him before he is tried. It seems unfair. Yes, no doubt. But to understand is to pardon, as the proverb says. They have to think something, and when there is only one thing for them to think, they think it, meaning well. It will blow over in time. Don't you worry. Oh, I... What do I care what forty millions of vermin choose to say or think? She pouted her pretty lips saucily. Forty millions of vermin, cried Fourneau. That's worse than Carlyle. Hilda Prout's swift hands plied among her papers. She made no answer, and Fourneau suddenly stood up. Well, you will mention to the valet and the others how the matter stands as to Mr. Osborne. He is simply avoiding the crowd, that is all. Good day. Hilda Prout rose, too, and Fourneau saw now how tall she was, well-formed and lithe, with a somewhat small face framed in that nest of red hair. Her complexion was spoiled and splashed with freckles, but otherwise she was dainty-featured and pretty, mouth, nose, chin, tiny, all except the wide-open eyes. So, she said to Fourneau as she put out her hand, you won't let me know where Mr. Osborne is? I may want to write to him on business. Why, didn't I tell you that he didn't write to me? That was only a blind. Dear me, a blind! It is the truth, Miss Prout. Tell that to someone else. What? Don't you like the truth? All right. Keep the information to yourself, then. Good-bye. I mustn't allow myself to dally in this charming room with the linnets, the sunlight, and the lady. For a few seconds she seemed to hesitate. Then she said suddenly, "'Yes, it's very nice in here. That door there leads into the morning-room, and that one yonder, at the side—' Her voice dropped and stopped. Fourneau appeared hardly to have heard, or, if hearing, to be merely making conversation. "'Yes, it leads where?' he asked, looking at her. Now her eyes, too, dropped, and she murmured, "'Into the museum.' The, well, naturally, Mr. Osborne is a connoisseur, quite so, only I rather expected you to say, a picture gallery. Is it open to inspection? Can one... It is open, certainly. The door is not locked, but there's nothing much. Oh, do let me have a look around, and come with me, if it will not take long. No one is more interested in curios than I. I will, if you like said the girl, with a strange note of confidence in her voice, and led the way into the museum. Fourneau found himself in a room, small, but full of riches. On a central table were several illuminated missals and old Hoch Deutsch manuscripts, 
some ancient timepieces, and a collection of enamelled watches of Limoges. Around the walls, open or in cabinets, were arms, blades of Toledo, minerals arranged on narrow shelves, an embalmed chieftain's head from Mexico, and many other bizarre objects. Hilda Prout knew the name and history of every one, and murmured an explanation as Fourneau bent in scrutiny. "'Those are what are called Celts,' she said. "'They are not very uncommon, and are found in every country, made of flint, mostly, and used as axe-heads by the ancients. These rough ones on this side are called Paleolithic, five hundred thousand years old, some of them. And these finer ones on this side are Neolithic, not quite so old, though there isn't much to choose in antiquity when it comes to hundreds of thousands.' Strange to say, one of the Neolithic ones has been missing for some days. I don't know whether Mr. Osborne has given it away or not. The fact that one was missing was, indeed, quite obvious, for the Celts stood in a row, stuck in holes drilled in the shelf. And right in the midst of the rank gaped one empty hole, a dumb little mouth that yet spoke. "'Yes, curious things,' said Fourneau, bending meditatively over them. I remember seeing pictures of them in books. Every one of these stones is stained with blood." "'Blood!' cried the girl in a startled way. "'Well, they were used in war and the chase, weren't they? Every one of them has given agony. Every one would be red if we saw it in its true colour." Red was also the colour of Fourneau's cheekbones at the moment, red as hectic. And he was conscious of it, as he was conscious also that his eyes were wildly alight. Hence he continued a long time bending over the Celts, so that Miss Prout might not see his face. His voice, however, was calm, since he habitually spoke in jerky, clipped syllables that betrayed either no emotion or too much. When he turned round it was to move straight to a little rack on the left, in which glittered a fine array of daggers, Japanese kokatanas, punals of Salamanca, conjars of Morocco, bowie knives of old California, some with squat blades coming quickly to a point, some long and thin to transfix the body, others meant to cut and gash, each with its label of minute writing. Fourneau's eye had duly noted them before, but he had passed them without stopping. Now, after seeing the Celts, he went back to them. To his surprise, Miss Prout did not come with him. She stood looking on the ground, her lower lip somewhat protruded, silent, obviously distraught. "'And these, Miss Prout?' chirped he. "'Are they of high value?' She neither answered nor moved. "'Perhaps you haven't studied their history,' ventured Furneaux again. Now, all at once, she moved to the rack of daggers, and without saying a word, tapped with the forefinger of her right hand, and kept on tapping, a vacant hole in the rack, though her eyes peered deeply into Fourneau's face. And for the first time Fourneau made acquaintance with the real splendour of her eyes, eyes that lived in sleep, torpid like the dormouse. But when they woke, woke to such a lambency of passion, that they fascinated and commanded like the basilisks. With eyes so alight she now kept peering at Fourneau, standing tall above him, tapping at the empty hole. "'Oh, I see!' said Fourneau, his eyes, too, alight like live coals. There's an article missing here, also, one from the Celts, one from the daggers. He is innocent, suddenly cried Hilda Prout, in a tempest of passionate reproach. 
She loves him, thought Fourneau. And the girl thought, he knew before now that these things were missing. His acting would deceive every man, but not every woman. How glad I am that I drew him on! Now, though the fact of the discovery of the Celt by Inspector Clark under the dead actress's piano had not been published in the papers, the fact that she had been stabbed through the eye by a long blade with blunt edges was known to all the world. There was nothing strange in this fierce outburst of Osborne's trusted secretary, nor that tears should spring to her eyes. "'Mr. Fourneau, he is innocent!' she wailed in a frenzy. "'Oh, he is! You noticed me hesitate just now to bring you in here? Well, this was the reason. This, this, this!' She tapped with her forefinger on the empty hole. "'For I knew that you would see this, and I knew that you would be jumping to some terrible conclusion as to Mr. Osborne.' "'Conclusion, no,' murmured Fourneau comfortingly. "'I avoid conclusions as traps for the unwary. Interesting, of course, that's all. Tell me what you know, and fear nothing. Conclusion, you say. I don't jump to conclusions. Tell me what was the shape of the dagger that has disappeared.' She was silent again for many seconds. She was wrung with doubt, whether to speak or not to speak. At last she voiced her agony. "'Either I must refuse to say, or I must tell the truth. And if I tell the truth, you will think—' She stopped again. All her repose of manner fled. "'You don't know what I will think,' put in Fourneau. "'Sometimes I think the most unexpected things. The best way is to give me the plain facts. The question is, whether the blade that has gone from there was shaped like the one supposed to have committed the crime in the flat? It was labelled Saracen Stiletto, about eleven-fifty, muttered the girl brokenly, looking Fourneau straight in the face, though the fire was now dead in her eyes. It had a square bone handle, with a crescent carved on one of the four faces, a longish thin blade like a skewer, only not round, with blunt-edged corners to it. Fourneau took up a little tube containing radium from a table at his hand, looked at it, and put it down again. Hilda Proud was too distraught to see that his hand shook a little. It was half a minute before he spoke. "'Well, all that proves nothing, though it is of interest, of course,' he said nonchalantly. "'How long has that stiletto been lying there?' "'Since, since I entered Mr. Osborne's employment, twelve months ago.' And you first noticed that it was gone, when? On the second afternoon after the murder, when I noticed that the Celt, too, was gone. The second, I see. I wondered what had become of them. I could imagine that Mr. Osborne might have given the Celt to some friend. But the stiletto was so rare a thing, I couldn't think that he would give that. I assumed, I assume, that they were stolen. But then by whom? That's the question said Fourneau. "'Was it this same stiletto that I have described to you that the murder was done with?' asked Hilda. "'Now, how can I tell that?' said Fourneau. "'I wasn't there, you know.' "'Was not the weapon, then, found in the unfortunate woman's flat?' "'No, no weapon.' "'Well, but that is excessively odd,' she said in a low voice. "'Why so excessively odd?' demanded Fourneau. "'Why? Because—' Don't you see? The weapon would be blood-stained, of course, and I should expect that after committing his horrid deed the murderer would be only too glad to get rid of it, and would leave it—' "'Oh, come, that is hardly a good guess, Miss Prout. 
I shall never make a lady detective of you. Murderers don't leave their weapons about behind them, for weapons are clues, you see. He was well aware that if the fact of the discovery of the Celt had been published in the papers, Hilda might justly have answered, but this murderer did leave one of his weapons behind, namely the Celt, and it is excessively odd that, since he left one, the smaller one, he did not leave the other, the larger one. As it was, the girl took thought, and her comment was shrewd enough. All murderers do not act in the same way, for some are a world more cunning and alert than others. I say that it is odd that the murderer did not leave behind the weapon that pierced the woman's eye, and I will prove it to you. If the stiletto was stolen from Mr. Osborne, and it really must have been stolen, and if that was the same stiletto that the deed was done with, then the motive of the thief in stealing it was to kill Mademoiselle de Bercy with it. But why should one steal a weapon to commit a murder? And why should the murderer have chosen Mr. Osborne to steal his weapon from? Obviously because he wanted to throw the suspicion upon him, in which case he would naturally leave the weapon behind as proof of Mr. Osborne's guilt. Now, then, have I proved my point? Though she spoke almost in italics, and was pale and flurried, she looked jauntily at Furneaux, with her head tossed back, and he, with half a smile, answered, "'I withdraw my remark as to your detective qualifications, Miss Prout. Yes, I think you reason well. If there was a thief, and the thief was the murderer, he would very likely have acted as you say.' "'Then why was the stiletto not found in the flat?' she asked. The fact that it was not found would seem to show that there was not a thief, he said, and he added quickly, Perhaps Mr. Osborne gave it as well as the Celt to someone. I suppose you asked him? He was gone away an hour before I missed them, Hilda answered. She hesitated again. When next she spoke it was with a smile that would have won a stone. Tell me where he is, she pleaded, and I will write to him about it. You may safely tell me, you know, for Mr. Osborne has no secrets from me. I wish I could tell you. Oh, but he will soon be back again, and then you will see him and speak to him once more. Some tone of badinage in these jerky sentences brought a flush to her face, but she tried to ward off his scrutiny with a commonplace remark. Well, that's some consolation. I must wait in patience till the mob finds a new sensation. Fourneau took a turn through the room, silently meditating. "'Thanks so much for your courtesy, Miss Prout,' he said at last. "'Our conversation has been fruitful.' "'Yes, fruitful in throwing still more suspicion upon an innocent man, if that is what you mean. Are not the police quite convinced yet of Mr. Osborne's innocence, Inspector Fourneau?' "'Oh, quite, quite,' he said hastily, somewhat taken aback by her candour. Two quites make a not quite, as two negatives make an affirmative, said she coldly, fingering and looking down at some wisteria in her bosom. She added with sudden warmth, Oh, but you should, Inspector Fourneau, you should. He has suffered, his honest and true heart has been wounded, and he has his alibi which, though in reality it may not be so good as you think, is yet quite good enough. But I know what it is that poisons your mind against him. "'You are full of statements, Miss Prout,' said Fourneau, with an inclination of the head. "'What is it now that poisons my mind against that gentleman?' 
It is that taxicab man's delusion that he took him from the Ritz Hotel to Feldisham Mansions and back, added to the housekeeper's delusion that she saw him here. Fourneau nearly gasped. Up to that moment he had heard no word about a housekeeper's delusion, or of a housekeeper's existence even. A long second passed before he could answer. Well, she was no doubt mistaken. I have not yet examined her personally, but I have every reason to believe that she is in error. At what hour, by the way, does she say that she thought she saw him here? She says she thinks it was about five minutes to eight. But at that time, I take it from the evidence, he must have been writing those two letters at the Ritz. If she were right, that would make out that after doing the deed at about seven-forty or so, he would have just time to come back here by five to eight and change his clothes. But he was at the Ritz, he was at the Ritz! And Mrs. Bates only saw his back an instant going up the stairs, his ghost's back, she means, his double's back, not his own. He was at the Ritz, Inspector Fourneau. Precisely, said Fourneau, with a voice that at last had a quiver in it. If any fact is clear in a maze of doubt, that, at least, is established beyond cabal. And Mrs. Bates' other name, I forget it? Hester. That's it. Is she here now? She is taking a holiday today. She was dreadfully upset. Thanks. Good-bye. He held out his hand a second time, quite affably. Hilda Prout followed him out to the library, and, when the street door had closed behind him, peeped through the curtains at his alert, natty figure as he hastened away. Fourneau took a motor-bus to Whitehall, and what was very odd, the bus carried him beyond his destination, over Westminster Bridge, indeed, he was so lost in meditation. His object now was to see Winter and fling at his chief's head some of the amazing things he had just learned. But when he arrived at Scotland Yard, Winter was not there. At that moment, in fact, Winter was at Osborne's house in Mayfair, whither he had rushed to meet Fourneau in order to whisper to Fourneau without a moment's delay some news just gleaned by the merest chance, the news that Pauline Dessault, Rose de Bercy's maid, had quarrelled with her mistress on the morning of the murder, and had been given notice to quit Mr. Bercy's service. When Winter arrived at Osborne's house, Fourneau, of course, was gone. To his question at the door, is Mr. Fourneau here? The parlour-maid answered, I'm not sure, sir. I'll see. Perhaps you don't know Mr. Fourneau, said Winter, a small-built gentleman. Oh, yes, sir, I know him, the girl answered. I let him in this morning, as well as when he called some days ago. No words in the English tongue could have more astonished Winter, for Fourneau had not mentioned to him that he had ever been to Osborne's. What Fourneau could have been doing there some days ago was beyond his guessing. Before his wonderment could get out another question, the girl was leading the way towards the library. In the library were Miss Prout, writing, and Jenkins handing her a letter. "'I came to see if Inspector Fourneau was here,' Winter said, "'but evidently he has gone.' "'Only about three minutes,' said Hilda Prout, throwing a quick look round at him. "'Thanks. I am sorry to have troubled you,' he said. Then he added to Jenkins, "'Much obliged for the cigars.' "'Do not mention it, sir,' said Jenkins. Winter had reached the library door when he stopped short. "'By the way, Jenkins, is this Mr. Fourneau's first visit here, or don't you remember?' 
"'Mr. Furneaux came here once before, sir,' said Jenkins, in his staid official way. "'Ah, uh, I thought perhaps... when was that?' "'Let me see, sir. It was... yes, on the third, the afternoon of the murder, I remember.' "'The third, the afternoon of the murder.' Those words ate their way into Winter's very brain. They might have been fired from a pistol rather than uttered by the placid Jenkins. "'The afternoon, you say,' repeated Winter. "'Yes, quite so. He wished to see Mr. Osborne. At what exact hour about would that be?' Jenkins again meditated. Then he said, "'Mr. Fourneau called, sir, about five-forty-five, as far as I can recollect.' He wished to see my master, who was out, but was expected to return. So Mr. Forneau was shown in here to await him, and he waited a quarter of an hour, if I am right in saying that he came at 5.45, because Mr. Osborne telephoned me from Feldisham Mansions that he would not be returning, and as I entered the museum there, where Mr. Forneau then was, to tell him, I heard the clock strike six, I remember. At this Hilda Prout whirled around in her chair. The museum! she cried. How odd! How exceedingly odd! Just now Mr. Furneaux seemed to be rather surprised when I told him that there was a museum. He doubtless forgot, miss, said Jenkins, for he had certainly gone in there when I entered the library. Thanks, thanks, said Winter lightly. That's how it was. Good day. And he went out with the vacant air of a man who has lost something, but knows not what. He drove straight to Scotland Yard. There in the office sat Fourneau. For a long time they conferred, Winter with hardly a word, one hand on his thigh, the other at his moustache, looking at Fourneau with a frown, with curious musing eyes, meditating, silent. And Fourneau told how the Celt and the stiletto were missing from Osborne's museum. "'And the inference?' said Winter, speaking at last, his round eyes staring widely at Fourneau. The inference, on the face of it, is that Osborne is guilty," said Fourneau quietly. "'An innocent man, Fourneau?' said Winter, almost with a groan of reproach. "'An innocent man?' Fourneau's eyes flashed angrily an instant, and some word leapt to his lips, but it was not uttered. He stood up. "'Well, that's how it stands for the moment. Time will show. I must be away,' he said. And when he had gone out, Winter rose wearily, and paced with slow steps a long time through the room, his head bent quite down, staring. Presently he came upon a broken cigar, such as Fourneau delighted in smelling. Then a fierce cry broke from him. Fourneau! My friend! Why, this is madness! Oh, damn everything! End of chapter 5